Thank you for tuning into Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan Kane. Welcome back, returning listeners, and if you're listening for the first time, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Radio Never Part is an interview feature started at the beginning of 2020, which launches monthly as part of the Never Apart online magazine. I have interviewed some incredible people in various aspects of nightlife and nightlife culture across North America, including performers, DJs, drag performers, promoters, and so many more. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brian Belovich about his incredible, unique path in New York's nightlife scene of the 1980s. Brian published a memoir titled Transfigured, My Journey from Boy to Girl to Woman to Man, and recently had a documentary made about his life, which we discuss in this interview. Brian, we're going to get started. I am so happy to be speaking with you today. I've been really looking forward to this interview. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you. So great to meet you too. I've known about you for for quite some time through some of our mutual contacts and I saw you speak at at a documentary screening, which we chatted about when we first made contact. So I feel like I know a little bit about you, Um, but do you want to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, what what you do. Oh my goodness. You mean presently or in the past? Presently. Talk, what <laughs> we can talk presently first. Okay. Well, presently I am um I'm doing work in the mental health counseling area. I I've I've later in life became a uh counselor about 14 years ago and then I, I um went back to school, uh, um, working on finishing up my graduate degree um, in a few months, hopefully, God willing. And that has not been, you know, uh, it has been very challenging, actually, with COVID and everything. It's been more difficult than what would be usual. And then um, I'm also the author of uh, a memoir titled uh, transfigured my journey from boy to girl to woman to man and I am someone who identifies as a cisgender gay man of trans experience um, because it wasn't just a blip in my life I actually lived as a trans person for about 15 years um, before deciding to retransition back to my uh, assigned gender at birth, which was male. And I, the title of your book is so um, engaging. It really sparks curiosity. And I think I had known, maybe even before I had known about your book, I had known that you'd been really involved in nightlife. I'd read an interview or some quotes that you'd done with Michael Musto talking about the New York nightlife scene in the 1980s and you were you were a prominent figure you you feature in some of Nelson Sullivan's 
videos on YouTube. Um, so writing a book gave you a chance to to talk about your life and to talk about that period of your life. And so I hope we can talk a little bit about that today and also just about that period of time in New York. Yeah, it was a very exciting time. Um, you know, there were other decades that preceded that time, the 80s, but uh, I, I first came to New York when I was 18 years old uh, from Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was to get away from, you know, my crazy family and try to sort of, you know, find my tribe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I landed on Christopher Street and in the Greenwich Village, you know, all of 18, you know, whopping years full of, you know, like, oh, I'm going to conquer the world kind of a attitude. And uh, yeah, and there was a whole different nightlife back then. I mean, it was, uh, you know, they, they didn't even let like, like women into gay bars yeah. back then. And they didn't let drag queens or trans women in either. Um, yeah. I remember, you know, having an experience at the old limelight, which used to be on 7th Avenue, like, you know, begging them to let me in. I was like, you know, you've got to let me in, like, you know. Wow. No, you yeah, and it was it was quite a quite a thing back then. Eventually, that all changed, you know, for the better. Yeah, I remember. I, I've read about some, you know, some people's accounts about some of the just segregation that existed, even within sort of you know queer nightlife or gay nightlife, um, and that specifically for some of the gay bars, it was a very stereotypical um, sort of patron and even type that was going to hang out there and yeah. they didn't allow it. Yeah, it was very segregated. And, um, you know, other, other clubs were a little less rigid, like the Bone Swa on 8th Street, you know, which was like this tiny little club, uh, which you went down the stairs and, you know, it's very famous for, you know, uh, Barbara Streisand and, you know, okay. Woody Allen and Joan Rivers got their start there and lots of other other famous people at a tiny little postage stamp stage. It was like a small little stage. Wow. And they, you know, then you could dance, but it was very small. Um, that was a little more forgiving. And then, of course, you know, it was in the height of the disco era. And so, you know, there was, you know, after, you know, studio, one studio, even before Studio 54 opened, there were other discos mm -hmm. that were very, um, uh, you know, well attended. Um, you know, Hurrah was one of them and uh, New York, New York and uh, Les Jardins. And, yes, I was going to say Les Jardins, which in Grace yeah. Jones's book about where she talks about New York Nightlife during that period and she describes Les Jardins really eloquently and it just sounds incredible <laughs> and i actually have that book and i read it and i i love her description of it uh, you know you could get on an elevator and go up yeah. you could change the mood by going up and down on the elevator and go into a different floor there was a completely different thing happening on all the different levels it was really cool and you know of course everybody was there you know that was anybody yeah uh, and then I was at the actual opening of Studio 54. Wow. Opening night. I was, um, 
I wrote a little bit about it in my book. It, I wrote this, this told the story of, you know, I was amused to Antonio Lopez, who was a, a very famous fashion illustrator, yeah. uh, artist. Um, he was incredible. And um, he used to invite me to all these places. And he thought that I, uh, for the opening night, Carmen, um, but the woman that was producing the opening oh, okay. night, that, was uh, looking for showgirls to come to sit on swings and descend from the sky. And Antonio thought that I would be a great showgirl to be included in the opening number. And so he sent me um, over to the, you know, as they were getting ready to meet with Carmen. And, uh, you know, I, I went in and, you know, it was too late. They'd already cast everything, but I was, mm -hmm. I was sort of I was sort of brushed off and said, oh, well, sit here and just, you know, she'll come and deal with you. And you know, there was just so much going on, like construction and people running around. And uh, eventually she came by and, who are you? And why did you come here? And I was like, well, Antonio sent me. Oh, it's too late. It's too late. We have all the girls we need. Goodbye. You know, it was inevitable that I would end up sort of, you know, I left New York for a while and then came back in in 83 and uh, then started to, you know, do the clubs, club scene and started to return to my original, you know, dream of being a performer and an actor and a singer. And, you know, so that's how I became involved in uh, the nightclub scene in the 80s. You have a, a specific memory of like, doing drag or going out to a club to like, you know, in a certain look or starting to kind of craft an alter ego or a persona? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, my drag days were sort of earlier in my life, like okay. as a kid, like I started doing, that's how I, you know, ended up transitioning because I started doing drag when I was like 16, mm -hmm. like a running away from home and you know I ended up at this you know I ended up I quit school and ran away from home and I ended up at this really cool uh gay LGBT they, they didn't have that word back then but it was like a ghetto of like trans and uh drag queens and gay people and I, and they sort of took me under their wing and so that's where I first sort of went into drag and you know won contests I won prizes and one one year I dressed as like this like futuristic Mae West and I won, I, I was all of 17 and I wore the gigantic like silver like hat, which was like a sa flying saucer and this skin tight, like, you know, hourglass black satin dress that when I swirled the panels would like fly out. It was really incredible. And I won wow. the first prize of that. So I, I got the bug for drag but then you know I was already experiencing my gender dysphoria and so very early on I started taking hormones and transitioning but I guess I was like I you know one time I was dancing on the bar at the pyramid with Ethel Eichelberger mm -hmm. and we were joking because we knew each other from Rhode Island where I grew up and we okay. would go and, and it was one of the last times that I'd seen Ethel before she passed away. And um, I was like, oh, Ethel, this is so much fun. And we were like laughing and 
carrying on on the bar. And I was like, look at us. I said, I said, I said, you know, you're, you're up here, you're in drag and here I am, I'm a trans queen. Like, you know, I made up this like, and she laughed. She thought that was really funny. Oh, that's great. You're a trans queen. That's it. That's what you are, trans queen. Was, and was there others in the scene then that were mentoring you a little bit? I mean, I think that's like, I've interviewed some, some folks about their transition and about the process of sort of discovering themselves in nightlife. And I wonder for you how that journey unfolded. Well, yeah, everything happened. I mean, you know, I, I, everything happened around bars and nightclubs because, you know, back then that was our, that was our safe space. And so that's where we went to find community. So, you know, I've had many mentors. I mean, my first mentor was a trans woman named Rusty and she, you know, took HRT and she, you know, dressed as female during the day, which I thought was like outrageous. I was like, oh my God, that's so amazing that you're able to go out in public and just be yourself. And so she was really an early inspiration for me. This is like, like really young, like 17, 18 years old. And mm -hmm. that was back in Rhode Island. And then, you know, um, when I moved to New York, you know, I, you know, I had sort of decided, well, maybe I should just give this drag stuff up for a little bit. And, you know, I, I had a brief stint on Christopher Street in the 70s trying to be a gay man. Um, and, you know, that didn't go very far. I mean, you know, back then, you know, it was the time of, you know, macho man and you know, uh, you know, handlebar mustaches and muscles and leather. And, you know, it's like, I was this fae, you know, feminine kid from Rhode Island, very young. Like, I mean, look, looking back on it, like, no wonder no one, you know, wanted anything to do with me. Who wants to date a, like an 18 year old androgynous kid wet under the ears? It doesn't, you know, so, I mean, I was, I was wise beyond my years but it kind of made sense. So um, I ended up meeting another trans woman uh, from Philadelphia. Her name was Isha. She took me to the Gilded Grape and she mm -hmm. took me to like the drag bars and introduced me to the whole like that scene in the 70s. And, uh, you know, it was there I found a lot of mentors. That, that's where I met actually, I met a crisis for the international crisis. And then there were other, you know, people my own age that were young and you know, experimenting with their, you know, uh, gender presentation. And yeah, and so I just, I, I ditched the gay thing and, you know, went whole hog with, you know, hormones and silicone and started to, you know, transition full-time into a female um, identity. Well, this is all, this all, it sort of connects really in a fascinating way because I interviewed Rosalind Blumenstein, mm -hmm. who also mentioned knowing you and, mm -hmm. and she talked a lot about the Gilded Grape and the GG yeah. room and the world that existed there. So people oh who have listened to the podcast will recognize that th these episodes will be back to back when they're, you know, finished in sequence. Um, so that, I mean, that she, she, she sort of, I can't remember how she phrased it exactly, but she said, you know, back then there wasn't, people just said, just go to the Gilded Grape. Like, you'll find people like you there. Yeah. It wasn't like. Yeah. yeah, I lived there. I mean, I feel like I lived there forever. 
I mean, it was such an, I mean, you know, it, it had its drawbacks. I mean, yeah. you know, were lots of, you know, when you're in that scene, that's, you know, there's lots of temptations for, you know, to go down the wrong path. And, you know, I, I actually met my first boyfriend there who ended up being a heroin addict. And so like, I took the whole like heroin, you know, uh, you know, trip you know, with this guy and, you know, there were lots of, lots of sex work going on in the clubs, you know, it was mm -hmm. sort of, you know, understood that if you, you know, went there at a certain time of the day, you'd, you know, definitely have a chance of making, you know, more money than if you went later at night where people were just into partying. Mm -hmm. They had a free buffet, which I went to every day because I lived on 49th street. A buffet, Brian, so they, what? They had an open buffet like at six o'clock at half, 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 happy hour. You could go and have drinks and they would put out the hot plates and you could eat. You know, many of us had very little money back then. So we would go and eat and then we'd go to work and try to, you know, make a little extra money. <laughs> but I had a lot of really wow. good friends from that time period and a lot of beautiful, actually they're in my book. I um I dedicated my book to all of the trans women that uh, I wish I had a copy of it here I could read it to you but mm -hmm. in the back of my book I dedicated uh, uh, I thanked all the trans women in my life back then and there was like mm -hmm. over fifty of them wow enlisted like some real amazing people that you know even if they didn't know it they mentored me in some way like recently. Funny that, you know, speaking of the Gilded Great, recently I reconnected with a, a woman, trans woman from that time period, uh, Sandra Caldwell, who is an actor and a very successful, beautiful, you know, I think she's around my age now, but she completely left that scene. I mean, I don't want to tell her story, but she completely, she's out about it. So I'm not breaking any like anonymity or anything, but she left that scene, but she was another one of my early mentors because she was, you know, you know, doing the 24 seven, you know, presenting as female, going to the club, singing and doing shows. And I thought, wow, that's something I could do. And so I really want, I really like, you know, was looked up to her and she was one of my early mentors mm. without even knowing it because I didn't even have the vocabulary to um, describe it you know back then it was just sort of like you looked up to these people like wow they're amazing I wonder how they live their lives and how I could learn from them so mm. it was really amazing like uh, you know people would really help you yeah and um, and can you talk a little bit about the international crisis? Crisis is someone who I, I, I think you know I'm I'm just a huge I think very highly of. I've done a lot of research about her. I think she's a very you know she's I don't think she's really had her moment of celebration that she deserves. Yeah, yeah, she hasn't really. I mean, there is that documentary, but it's kind of. I know when we saw it, we were all sort of like cringing a little bit at some of the language because you know the language police hadn't been hired yet and she was a mentor to me too because when I first saw the first time I saw her was after her show at the Blue Angel it wasn't it wasn't a you know it wasn't a dive bar either it was a yeah. very 
upscale, fancy venue. It was, it was, that was like, I was always very impressed. You know, so the first time I saw her was her coming in after her show at the, the Gilded Grape on 8th Avenue and 45th Street, which is now a sushi place. Um, it's still in the same place, uh, but it's a sushi bar. You can go in and have sushi in there. My husband and I went a few years back and we bumped into, um, what's her name? Oh, a Sherry Vine was in there oh. with a bunch of her friends and she that happened to sit down next to us. We started talking and I was like, girl, you know what this place used to be? And she was like, no. I was like, well, I used to perform right there at that, that that's where the stage was over there. And, uh, you know, she got quite a kick out of that um, wow. history. Yes. And then, you know, and then after, you know, then did Rosalind talk anything about the, the 220 Club? Yes, she did. Um, yeah. Which That's another space that I'm, I always, I was sort of fascinated by. I lived not far from it um, for a few years. And when I would walk by, because it's still like a sports bar, like the orientation is still the same. It's still three levels. And I think now they have AA meetings on the up, on the very yeah. top floor. Yeah. So she yeah. talked about just the, just the physical layout of it, right? Each floor with a different, you know, had it, one floor had a DJ and one was more of a bar or something. It's, it's so incredible to imagine because I just don't think places like that exist in New York or in Manhattan um, that are that size. I know of. I mean, yeah. I'd have to ask, I would have to ask my friend Michael Musto. He might know of places like that, but I think they all went the way of Giuliani, like Save the Robot, yeah. you know, those kind of like uh, Milk Bar and yeah. places like that. They kind of uh, went the way of Giuliani. I don't know if they've ever made a comeback. Yeah. Um, but the 220 was, you know, the, <laughs> the first time I went there was, you know, when I first came to New York in the 70s, 74. And you would, you know, you had to be careful where you stepped because you could fall through the floor. There were holes in the floor. Oh, my God. It was very dark. There were no, you know, very, like, very dimly lit. And uh, there was a little dance floor and they had a mirror ball and the DJ booth in the corner. Now where they do have the, uh, they have those you know, the AA meetings there. And there was a long bar along the wall. And I was Miss 220, 1977. Amazing. Well, Rosalind talked about eventually she didn't ever win Miss 220, but then a few years after two or three or something, she won the Miss 220 of all the 220s. But in earlier years, she did not win. So you were actually the yeah. I was reigning the Miss 220. Okay. Yeah, 1977. And they put a big picture of you up in the club and it had little, it had sequin letters. It said, Miss 220. I have the photograph still. Wow. Um, I have a photograph of me wearing the crown and the little banner that said Miss 220. I had to go around, you know, it was very political. You had to go around and visit the other bars and promote the club. And, you know, it was my agenda. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I was like wow. 20, 21. It's incredible. I mean, it's really incredible. It's it, what's so significant to me, I think, is just that, you know, younger, younger generations don't, I, I just don't think can really conceive of a, of a scene that existed like that, that was very trans celebratory, because at yes, least according very, to Rosalind, it was yeah. primarily trans women. Yeah. Um, and few trans men, but not very many. 
and that it was very distinctive from drag scenes or drag sort of spaces, uh, which in a lot of other places, maybe where there's not as many options, there's a little bit more overlap, but that in New York, there actually existed like spaces that were really uh, like entire communities that thrived. Yeah. Some of these spaces. And, 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 and we all performed and, you know, like, you know, like we did lips, you know, some of them, yeah. I mean, I, I sang in my club act. I had a band and I had, you know, wow. sang, danced and I, you know, I have a pretty good voice and, you know, I was, you know, another person that always inspired me was Jane County mm. and Candy, Candy Darling and, you know, the, those people. And so, you know, I was trying to, you know, pave, I was trying to pave the way for some kind of, you know, career for myself as a singer and a um, actor. But, you know, as a trans woman in the 80s, you know, they loved having me around for fun. And I was great to look at. And I had a lot of fun. But when it came to serious business, like, you know, you're going to hire me for a film, you're going to promote me on your, you know, no, they weren't doing that back then. And, and, you know, I write a lot about this in my book. And, you know, that's there, you know, there's not one thing that caused me to, you know, retransition, but that was one of the things that, mm. you know, I had worked so hard to perfect my identity and be successful and, everything that I did and every road I turned down was a dead end mm. and uh, devastating, very difficult. I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, a lot of my friends from that time period are, are not with us anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I think- of, A lot of the beautiful girls that, from that time, they're either drug overdoses or murdered or, you know, a lot of them didn't make it out of that scene. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and HIV AIDS was uh, and just HIV. catastrophic in the yeah. 1980s, right? To, yeah. to people yes. in, the, in yeah. the queer community. Um, yeah. I'm a long-term survivor of HIV for, you know, like 35 years now. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was, you know. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I mean, I know there are people who have now been living with it for quite some time as yeah things have decades. improved and evolved in terms of treatments thankfully yeah but uh the limelight it was really a very heady time like I was the, I was the queen of the limelight as far as like I just did I I was also a promoter okay with my friend Gabriel Ritello and uh excuse me I produced a lot of fun events at the limelight and uh, at the Palladium and uh, the Mike Todd room at the Palladium and and you know then the pyramid came around which was also another fun kind of offbeat place to be creative and have a you know really great outlet to express your creativity and not be judged. Mm -hmm. you know? were trans or you were you know they used to joke like one of my friends taboo he always jokes about when he met me him and his his uh friend at the time uh, his friend happy face they were two pyramid you know stalwart regulars um very involved in that whole scene and they used to like talk say that 
Tisha's not really a, a, a trans woman. She's a woman pretending to be a drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't they did not they could not believe that I was trans. Mm. They thought really thought that I was like you know like Bob like that. Who's that woman that kind of makes believe she's a drag queen? Is it Bob the Bob? I forgot her name. Anyway, oh, well, yes, uh, I know you're talking about Bob, and she's a she's a sort of a burlesque performer, yeah, but she's also a performer. Yeah, but she like pretends sort of world pretend. famous, the world famous Bob. world famous Bob. Yes, drag queen because she is a drag queen. But um, yeah, so they were like they used to, you know, I became friends with them later on. They said, you know, when you came the first time you came in the, to that club, we thought who is this girl trying to get over as a drag queen? <laughs> um, can you talk oh. a little bit about your act? Was What were you, what kind of songs did you sing? What, what was like your wheelhouse? I created little sort of cabaret act around like 50s sort of oldies, like sort of this uh, party girl on the town just having a great time. And so my whole club persona was like this, you know, uh, uh, it's my party, Leslie Gore and mm -hmm. the, like, some Beatles covers and uh, some R&B uh, uh, classics. You know, I had a full band and- uh, I mean, that's incredible. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube if people wanna look for and find uh, a lot of the, thanks to Nelson Sullivan, who was another mentor uh, of mine and who, you know, <laughs> left an incredible legacy of New York nightlife that would have never been, you know, I mean, a few people dipped and dabbed and sort of what he did, but he was like the selfie king of his day. It, and it's pre-YouTube, pre-Instagram. It's almost Every of that era. Like it's it's from that era, but it's very much like what people do now with social yeah. media. Yeah. That was, I mean, I, I agree with you. Thank goodness it was documented and that it was saved and that it exists. It's such a lens into that world. It's just a whole. Yeah, the whole collection is at the Fails Library at NYU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, but you can't, I think they can view stuff. Yeah, I've I've been in contact with um, whoever manages the archive now because at an exhibition that I curated last year, uh, footage of crisis that was shot by Nelson Sullivan was displayed, which I learned after the exhibition that it's I believe the last time crisis performed, not at her not at the fundraising event that she had at La Mama, but it was the her performing was, Oh Happy Day, with the big curtain yeah. coming up in the calla lilies. Yes, I was at the La Mama thing. Okay. Yes, I was there for her tribute. Yeah. I never see her though. That one of the saddest things. I never got to really see her when she got really sick. Mm -hmm. It was very sort of controlled about who could, you know, come in to the hospital, and uh, she was very sick. It was quite. And, it happened quite quickly too. From people I've spoken to, it it really was nobody had any idea, and then. No, and we did we did this great movie together called Q and A with Sydney Lumet and uh, Nick Nolte. Yes, I mean it was you know I mean I'm sure people would have a problem with it today because 
I was playing a trans prostitute and um, Crisis was a showgirl um, in a club and some of the language would be considered offensive and the portrayal, you know, like I was accosted on the street by Nick Nolte, like grabbing under my skirt and, you know, revealing my true gender to the everyone that was, you know, there. And so that would probably not pass the, but I got my SAG card. <laughs> <laughs> And that's been worth every penny, every painful moment of that scene. <laughs> well, I, I that that is a positive. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit difficult to watch. But having said that, I also, you know, acted in some things that, thinking back on them now, I'm happy that they're sort of buried, that they were never really seen by, by, any, you know. I mean, some a couple yeah. things I did were, but. I, I mean, know. when I thought it was such I was a different like, time, it kind of hit me after at the time. But then after I viewed it, after I saw it, I was like, oh, it's kind of one of those like, you know, abuse the trans folk movies and, you know, make us, you know, look um, unflattering. Yeah. So we can't really, you know. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, I think. Negate as, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm pro sex work. So. I think, um, you know, the portrayal of, I don't find that offensive, but some of the other stuff I do. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, there's, there's some pretty classic sort of stereotypes that it, that it presents and thank goodness we've come a very long way now. There's a real array of different, uh, you know, characterizations in media. Yeah. People might see and be exposed to outside of just trans women and sex workers so we can also say thank goodness we've we're now kind of evolving and moving forward um so can you talk a little bit about when when your when the transition happened then to post your life as a performer and how that evolved for you how that came about you mean um, when I started to perform or? Well, did you, I mean, do you use the language detransition? I, I sort I of phrased I, it as another I, transition. I don't, I don't really like the word detransition. I have always only used the word retransition. Retransition, correct. Yeah, so that's how, how I was trying to frame it. I, I find that that term is much more positive because yes. detransition, has a negative connotation to it like yeah. sound, something didn't work out yes whereas retransition is just a reimagining of yourself as something else yeah and so i know that i recently heard and it, I, I i'm i may be mistaken but i think that i was one of the first people to use that term mm. um, i've been very public about it mm -hmm recently heard an interview with one of the kids from Drag Race using the same term. Wow. So I was like, oh, good. I'm glad that that's sort of making its way. I think it was Eureka O'Hara. She had, she has a mention that she has had a past as a, she had a brief time where she was considering, where she was living as trans. She was presenting mm -hmm. as a woman. And I, I guess she may have, 
done HRT at some point, but she used that term. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that's so great that she's using that language because there's a lot of stigma around, you know, um, people that don't fit into the traditional trans narrative. Yes. And I find any way to remove that. And that's actually kind of some of the work that I've been doing as a counselor and, and, and my, um, you know, I'm hoping to do moving forward is sort of, you know, erasing that stigma and also providing and making space for people that, like myself mm-hmm. uh, and others, who have decided that, you know, maybe this is something they want to move on from that experience or have a different experience with their gender and as we know now you know which we didn't know say even 10 or 20 years ago that gender now is more inclusive and it's a much broader umbrella uh, for people to get under in many different presentations you know we have gender fluid gender non-conforming i mean there's like a hundred i mean i mean i did i did a blog on it for this practice that I was working at last spring and I was shocked at all of the different incarnations that people use to claim their you know identity today we didn't have when I was growing up you know you had to pick a lane and stay in it yeah and I think I think it's really beautiful I mean I think all of us are in some form of transition throughout our lives, transitioning from one job to another, from one phase of life to another, transitioning into a new life in a new city. Like we're, we're in constant evolution. So I, I completely agree with you. I think detransitioning has this sort of like regression or this, there's a real, there's something really sort of negative around it all. Um, yeah, and I, I also, don't... you know, I think there was in, pre, in past decades, there was a lot of people that were involved in performance or in nightlife, maybe in the drag world. And it, it was much more fluid uh, in terms of all those evolutions. And, you know, but there was that moment recently where, you know, on, on Drag Race, where people, you know, for the first time they had trans women competing and trans, trans men. And that's not new bulletin here kids that is not new that has been around and around for decades and decades and in the club that we talked about the gg gg knickerbocker it was three incarnations first it was the g the gilded grape that was the original on 8th avenue and 45th street then it moved up the street to 45th off of broadway and became the gg Barnum room and they had a trapeze it was the old diplomat hotel and they had like you know trans women and 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 go-go boys swinging from trapezes I mean Rosalind described it and and also Brian I had that same week and it was a sheer coincidence I'd actually gone to look at these issues of after dark magazine at the New York Public Library I was looking to see if there was some, anyways, it was unrelated, but I found this whole story about the Gigi Barnum room and they had all these photos of that trapeze and the oh, bar wow. itself. And like, my mind was blown. I mean, Rosalind had described it to me, but to actually see it, I just couldn't really fathom. It was incredible. And I lip sync, you know, and I, you know, it was another way that I could make a living. I would lip sync, 
you know, Miss 220 from 1977 is here. She's going to do a number and I'd get like 150 bucks. Mm-hmm. Lip syncing to Donna Summer or, you know, um, you know, uh, or the emotion, the best, you know, one of my favorite songs to do was the best of my love. You know, I mean, I, I, I was lip syncing and I was a tra- I wasn't a drag queen, but, mm-hmm. you know, that that went on even yeah. in the 50s. Yeah. Let's um, let's fast forward a little bit to talk about some of the projects that you've been working on more recently, which has included a book. You published a book and talked about your life and your involvement in nightlife. Mm-hmm. And also a film was made. Do you want to talk a little bit about the film? Yes, there is a film in the, somewhere on someone's hard drive <laughs> right now. <laughs> the film is going to make you love me. And it's a documentary. It was directed and produced by Karen Bernstein. And we premiered at the New York City Doc Fest in 2019, just before the pandemic. Okay. And we received amazing reviews, not one bad review, like just the the response was overwhelming. It was so positive. We then got invited all over the world to different festivals and, you know, in, in, in I think even in like um, Israel and Italy and England and like I was like oh my god this is like my bucket list life like I was like oh my god I could really see myself just (laughs) doing all this stuff and then we know what happened next so we were scheduled to be at the South by Southwest festival and that was canceled I had my ticket booked I still have the ticket I haven't used it yet and um, so we were going to be at the South by Southwest festival then that was canceled and we once they figured out the virtual stuff we did appear at a couple of other we did the uh toronto uh gay festival i forget the name of it right now it's out of my head but we did one there we did the wicked queer festival in boston and then we were streamed on amazon for only 10 days as part of a curated south by southwest they felt bad for us oh wow oh so it was 10 days on Amazon. Again, four or five star reviews, um, amazing press. And now we're still trying to find a distributor. Um, and so that's why I joked about it's probably sitting on, you know, Karen's hard drive right now, you know, collecting, you know, whatever things collect D- digital dust pretend imaginary Digi- dust but yeah but Imag- also not because sometimes films just need to have that little bit of a lull period and then they're discovered or revisited or re seen yeah. I mean I think it's going to be very I, I think hard to envision what's going to happen with film festivals in the next 12 months because a lot of yeah. people I think held off from even yeah. submitting because they really didn't necessarily want to just do a virtual route. So maybe there's going to be this mad rush of films. And if we get to all watch lots of amazing films in 2022 and go to incredible film festivals, I mean, crossing fingers, right? You never know. It's, uh, I mean, I, when I, I didn't know what to expect when I saw it, but when I, when, the, when it was finished, I just could not stop sobbing. I was just, mm. um, I was a, 
because they did such an amazing, there were interviews with family and, you know, wow. lots of footage from Nelson and, uh, you know, it goes very deep into issues and it's very impactful. I go back to Rhode Island where I, where I am now, where I grew up and she followed me around different places. It it, it's just extremely well done. And her thinking is that, you know, there's a term that she used, which I can't, remember um she said it's the kind of story that you know is always going to be um popular it's always going to be like um something that people want to see Absolutely. so not as worried about finding a distributor um and i've also written a screenplay i have a full feature length screenplay wow which, yes and i just recently completed a, a rewrite on it and i'm um, um, the next i'm gonna start um submitting it to some festivals some screenwriting festivals um that i think the next one is in december that i'm gonna um submit it to cool. i did submit to austin the i was a finalist at the austin film festival of, uh, i think in 2018 or 17. Cool. And, uh, got great feedback and made changes based on the feedback that they gave me. And so, you know, they're also because of, you know, my book, there was interest in a, in a series, in a uh, ongoing series, because the book is episodic. Like there's like 20, you know, 22 chapters that cover like quite a bit of, you know, history and time period. So they're very episodic in the way that I wrote it. So there was some interest at one point about um, uh, adapting the book into a series on, you know, it was, I won't say what, what um, streaming person it was, but for some reason it didn't work out. And I don't mm -hmm. know what happened with that, but, you know, that's the business of you know, the film business as, as we know it today, it's very, you know, fickle. Yes. Probably had something to do with COVID because it was shortly, not too long after that, that COVID happened. But, um, you know, it's, you know, Hollywood, whoever Hollywood is, or, you know, the Hollywood players, the, and, you know, we're so lucky we have so many more like, uh, advocates for our stories now yes. than did like even just a few years ago so I'm, I'm hopeful that at some point someone's gonna look at my book or, and say oh my god this is this would be a great project for me to pursue and I've been sort of um you know sort of working on that um putting you know feelers out here and there Cool. But what the thing, the thing that what the thing that wasn't really addressed in the documentary, the only thing is that I do a lot of advocacy and I do a lot of, you know, and I hate I I I I'm even uncomfortable saying it, but I I've helped a lot of people um, through the work that I do, and that's kind of one of the things that I wish was included in, in the documentary documentary it was a, a strong suggestion um that they do one of those little things at the end that told people like mm. what i've been doing with my life since then okay 
And, uh, you know, so that's kind of what I've been doing is sort of like, you know, saving lives and help, helping people. Um, mm. with, uh, and it's, so I think that it would, you know, it puts a nice sort of like, um, what's the word? I'm at a loss for words now talking about that part of myself. So, uh. <laughs> what's like a continuation? I guess this is maybe the continuation yeah. of your story. And, and, and that's the thing with, I guess, a book or a film, right? We, we understand it as like a, there's an, an end point or there's a conclusion, but you're obviously still very much alive and with us and doing work and moving yeah. on to new chapters. So that's the continuation of your story. That's yeah. where it's headed. And, and I'm in my act three, you know, my act, yeah. three, act three is, you know, like I'm hoping to graduate in May, although that's been quite challenging. You know, I'm an older student. I'm probably one of the oldest interns in America right now. <laughs> well, I applaud you. I applaud you for going back to school and 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 committing to it and, and doing that work. And I think it's so needed. And yeah, the more diversity of voices we have in, in those worlds the better yeah and my, my, my supervisor was saying to me last week she's like Brian she said you, what do you what do you think you're really good at and I was like well I'm really I'm really good at like understanding the complexities of gender and sexuality and yeah. you know you know addiction and you know she said well those are the things that you really need to focus on I was like okay I'll do that thank you for pointing <laughs> Brian, this has been so wonderful. You so wonderful speaking to you from the comfort of your place in Rhode Island. Here we are now in this new reality. We don't even have to. Yeah, no, we don't even. You're looking relaxed. We don't have to get on a plane. You're looking relaxed and comfortable. I want to thank you so much for being part of this interview series, being part of Radio Never Apart. I'm going to include some links for people to find your book and to be able to stay tuned about the film. And I'll keep my fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Jordan. That it it's, will evolve out. Yes, thank you, Jordan, for inviting me. I I, I enjoyed our, our our talk. As of October 2021, we have launched new fall exhibitions at Sandra Never Apart in Montreal's Mile X neighborhood. You can visit the center every Saturday from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. For all the information on this, you can visit our website neverapart.com or find us on social channels at neverapartmtl. Be sure to leave a comment or review on whichever platform you're listening to, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and you can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive.